Chisholm, please. Uh, Chisholm, please. Uh, Chisholm, Doctor. Thank you. Welcome to this very special episode of the Magical Disneyland Paris podcast, all things magical and Disneyland Paris. I'm Andrew Williamson and on today's special episode we're going to share with you our amazing interview with ex-Disney Imagineer Eddie Soto. Eddie was a show producer for Main Street USA at Disneyland Paris. I started by asking Eddie what his role in the creation of Disneyland Paris was. Enjoy the interview. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, I'd always dreamt of becoming an Imagineer, and uh, but the path to Imagineering isn't necessarily a direct one. Uh, I had worked at what was the number three theme park in the country between, between, behind Disneyland and Disney World, which is Knott's Berry Farm and uh, here in California. Uh, it was even ahead of Universal at the time. And so that was my very first job in design. And uh, as a result, I tried to you know, show my work to Disney or and so forth. And even with Knott's experience, uh, really wasn't uh, at the point where they were, you know, the timing wasn't right and so forth. And so... <laughs> It, it ended up that I was working on a, a project for the Six Flags Corporation after I left Knott's, worked for another design firm, and it was very Victorian. It had a Jules Verne quality to it, oh, cool. uh, very reminiscent of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, very much like a laboratory, and had lots of very, uh, very fun sets and so forth to it. It was called the Six Flags Power Plant. And Tony Baxter, I had met him off and on, just kind of following him around as always, all of us would do. Uh, I, I knew his assistant, Bruce Gordon, who's actually pretty well known in the in the design world. Yeah. And uh, I, I would meet with Bruce Gordon for lunch and show him images of this project in process. And Tony always wants to be the first to know anything. So he would see these big Victorian works, these giant, I mean, full-size submarines and things we were building. And I had designed these things and sent him pictures. So he actually went out to see this power plant ill-fated project as it may be went out and saw it and was i think he was very impressed with the work of it and uh called and and uh, instead of me having to break the doors down to imagineering called and, and asked uh he says hey how, how would you like to be the designer for one of the lands of disneyland paris of course given that i had done this jules verne kind of project i thought perhaps i would get discovery land that went to tim delaney who had been riding the hit of the living seas pavilion and so i was given main street and uh, so that's that's kind of uh, I got hired in at kind of a senior level, which was great. A lot of people have to work through the model shops. So I felt very honored that Tony would bring me in and, in kind of an executive role. So uh, it could it couldn't have been a more exciting thing. But the minute <laughs> the minute I got hired, they they kind of put a, a secret moratorium on working on the project because the contracts were still in negotiation stages. So as soon as I was hired, I had nothing to do. <laughs> and so uh, they found other things for me to do in the meantime. And so we kind of brainstormed what Main Street could be. And frankly, I was a little bit disappointed that, you know, my very first assignment with a five-year lifespan to it was kind of copying another another Main Street or, or, or replicating something. That just to a designer, that's the kiss of death. That's like being sentenced to solitary confinement without a pencil, you know. Yeah. What other projects were you asked to work on before you uh, could work on Main Street? Well, I uh, worked on uh, Pleasure Island, which was kind of a nightclub district for Walt Disney World. Worked on that a little bit. But the funnest thing, my first week, they said, well, you know, we got this uh, consulting person coming in. We need to do some brainstorming meetings with them. Um, would you want to, you know, come and sit in on the brainstorming meeting and, and hang out and work on Tomorrowland a little bit? I said, well, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm here. I, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, why don't you come in and sit down? So I go in the room and who is it but George Lucas? Wow. You know? And I know, <laughs> so uh, this, my very first thing I'd ever drawn or, or worked on at Imagineering was taking what is called the Carousel Theater at Anaheim Disneyland, which is a large rotating theater building, and re-theming it into sort of 
the grandfather of the Millennium Falcon, a giant sort of ship. And the premise was that it could travel from place to place with a show inside or some sort of an interesting show. And Lucas loved that idea. We made a model. And there's actually some photographs out on the net of uh, showing the model to Lucas. So that was fun. Um, so you were mentioning there um, a bit disappointed that you had to kind of, as a designer, copy um, a main street that has already been put in place in two Disney parks. What were your initial ideas if you didn't if you didn't have to copy as such? Obviously, you didn't copy everything, but was there any initial ideas that you would have loved to have put into our main street USA at Disneyland Paris? Well, there was a couple of things. It wasn't just driven by my own desire to not want to repeat or you know or, or do something that had been done. The proposal on the table, because of the weather in France, was to enclose it in a glass roof, much like the World Bazaar of Tokyo Disneyland, which is somewhat of a a little bit le- a little more heartless kind of or themeless main street, or more of a mall with a glass roof. Tony Baxter did not want to do that. He just thought that that would kill all the uh, kinetics, you know, the action. You would because you can't have cars, you can't have vehicles, you can't have parades. There's a lot of things you don't do when you have that. Yeah. And it really, it really isn't the right first impression. And uh, at the same time, we did get to go on a research trip. They let us go around Europe and so forth and look at the other parks and all together with the design team. And it, and it was kind of arrived at that both Tony and I, actually, this is the first week or so, sort of believed that, well, doesn't it seem realistic that building a cute American village or you know small town American town is not something Europeans are going to really relate to? If you look at France... It's nothing but cute, quaint villages all connected to <laughs> Paris and Lyon and a few large cities. I mean, uh, and, and since uh, we, our, our architecture is very derivative of Europe, we, we sort of put it in a blender and made up, made up our own version of it, um, that that also wouldn't really read as something that's going to tug at the heartstrings of Europeans. And so Tony and, and I both, um, frankly, both kind of love this idea of pushing the 19th century clock forward just a little bit perhaps into the 1920s, uh, more of the jazz age when American music was actually something quite distinctive. You could, you know, if you heard that walking down the street, you'd know you were in a different location, a different place. And so uh, that was kind of exciting. And, and he and I both shared a love for the New York street that had been done at 20th Century Fox Studios for the film Hello, Dolly. Uh, I had been there as a child on a studio tour at 10. Tony was an extra in the, in the film on that set. So we both shared a love of this particular movie set and the feeling of it. Um, and so I, 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 we had used that as almost the currency of our discussions and saying, well, what if it was a little more like this? What if we had an elevated train? What if we could really do something that gives the excitement of not the America of going from a little town with gas lights to electricity, but a place with electricity finding new music and entertainment and all kinds of things. It's a little bit more of the America you've seen in the films because that's what our export is. So we were, you know, we were going to have a 1920s uh, Main Street, maybe a little of the Art Deco style f- filtering in a little bit. Uh, so we, we had done quite a bit of work on this, like a year's work. <laughs> and uh, we had a speakeasy, you know, where if you'd seen the films where, you know, a storefront looks like a flower shop or a funeral parlor, let's say the movie Some Like It Hot with Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, you know, it looks like a funeral parlor, but you go inside, there's a a show going on, you know, and maybe we don't serve cocktails, but we can certainly have the jazz and the music and everything else really make it fun. And we're not going to do blood and guts and and, uh, crime and the Godfather. We're going to do the Keystone Cops from the silent films. It's going to be funny. It's going to be irreverent and and fun and positive, not negative. Anyway, that's the way we approached it. And uh, never go on vacation is my advice to the listeners here today don't don't go on vacation because i went on vacation and when i came back from vacation they had canceled the main street <laughs> they <laughs> oh, met dear. privately they looked at the budget they met privately and said oh my goodness you know, what have these guys done they've gone so far off the script and you know and, and michael eisner i think was a little concerned by the deviation from the disney formula well is is going this other direction something there that's going to be we, we will have lost our innocence so to speak with this more urban idea than the charming small town idea well you know that was up to debate so uh when i came back it was canceled and we were promptly behind all the other lands in design by one year because we had to throw everything away and start over so uh 
So that was our attempt. Now, every prisoner, I believe, has a right to attempt escape. And so <laughs> Tony and I kind of decided that, well, we're still going to take some of that excitement and do billboards. We're going to do the interiors differently. We're going to still evolve the main street and make it something Europeans would appreciate. And, and, and my gesture toward that or, or sort of feeling was Europeans love to take their kids to museums on the weekends. They love culture. They're used to that. They've grown up with that themselves. So why not make your first impression of Disneyland not a ride necessarily, but when you see this beautiful environment, it's almost like a living museum. You see that there's arcades with plaques and all kinds of interesting things. And you say, well, wow, uh, I thought this was a cheap carnival, this Disney thing. It's actually quite cultural. It has some depth to it. And I thought that's what we should do for Europe. Europeans live in uh, layered environments that have depth and history. Why can't we apply um, education and sort of culture uh, beyond Elvis and hot dogs and Marilyn Monroe into the American scene and, and make everything culturally um, deep, as, as deep as we can at least afford to. So um, once you've had your changes okayed by uh, the powers that be and Tony Baxter and the such, uh, do you, how, what, how does the stage begin on actually designing and getting out there and putting the actual main street together? Well, I mean, first of all, you have, the you have the negotiations to do. You're the producer. You have the foods department and the merchandise department, especially in an area like Main Street, which is less ride-oriented and more of the mall yeah. kind of situation. So you have to negotiate um, because there's a dollar value or a euro value associated with the every square foot of your area. So if you make a store smaller, you're costing them money. I mean, so you have to really work uh, holistically, <laughs> almost as a, a United Nations of theme parks, you know, kind of negotiator to keep the show in the land and to keep the entertainment value in the land because it's so it's just so valuable to the company. And so um, it's it's always cheerleading and, uh, you know, boostering the theming and the story into the spaces and really showing the merchandise and foods people that you're not just on your side, but you're on their side as well. You want them to succeed as well as you want something um, that is going to look good visually. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, one of the things you see in merchandise stores is stuffed animals and souvenirs and things like this. So the only way I f could imagine to sell those things in an appropriate environment was to theme it like a uh, county fair or something like this. So the Disney and Company store, the theming of that space is very complementary to the stuffed toys and the prizes and things like this that you would have in there because the theming is meeting the merchandise halfway. Um, ordinarily at Disney, you'd have a very fine, elegant store and then they would put in mugs and t-shirts and you'd say, this looks a bit discordant to me. I, I don't understand why these products would be in this environment. Well, we try to make, not, not necessarily step down to the merchandise, but we try to find ways of cleverly making these things more appetizing. So part of that process really begins with the programming and the layout. And from there, you, you come up with the stories for the interiors and, and to really differentiate them and make them rich and uh, driven by a, uh, a visual narrative. When um, you were designing and uh, obviously you must have worked with scale models and done loads and loads of drawings, um, are you do, is this taking place on land in, Paris, in France or are you back at the studios in America? Or? Well, no, it all starts in Southern California, yeah. out here at Walt Disney Imagineering. And we have a wonderful team of illustrators, uh, interior designers, some of which worked on movies and films. And so assembling that team that's going to do all these things is equally important. It's, it's as you know, in programming, it's garbage in, garbage out. You want to put in the very best talents and so forth. So as the design director, you want to set the direction. You want to be able to see things at a, a tiniest detail, but also fly above the project to make sure everything is, is in its place. And so one of the things I thought was out of place was we had lost a bit of our art, and this is true also in France, in being able to draw the beautiful elaborate moldings and classical sort of things you find in 19th century design and, and to really put the emotion in it. And um, I was able to work with Herbert Ryman, who was the illustrator who did Disneyland's very first rendering. 
that was sold to the banks and basically done over a weekend. Herb Ryman taught me that the emotion comes first and the design comes second. You have to emotionally know where you're going with these things. So we would we would definitely start with those emotional cues and that would lead us into color, into design, into the wall coverings uh, and, and things like this. And so a lot of the sources uh, as well, um, the wall coverings were all handmade in San Francisco and shipped to Europe. The stained glass is done in American style, not European style. I wanted any expert that could walk down Main Street, and let's say you had a, you know, uh, a degree in interior design, to be able to look at something and go, no, that's not from Europe. That's an American. That's an American uh, design or an American interpretation of a European design. So we even purchased um, over here in the states. At this at this point, we set up our list. And we said, well, we want to buy all the antique light fixtures and then rewire them for Europe. I don't want European people to see something out of a catalog, you know, from Ireland that they see, oh, there it is on the wall and it's supposed to be American. That's like being a, a poser yeah. or an imposter. So all these things happened and could only happen here in Los Angeles. You you know, you to set up a prop buying strategy or antique buying strategy that's sourced here and then shipped there. Then the Europeans, or and I say Europeans because not only French worked on it, um, would take our, our intention drawings or the designs we intended, our concept drawings, and they would interpret them into European documents that could be built under European law yeah. or French law with French architects. Bit of a joke in the Disneyland Paris community about how strict the French construction laws are. Are they, from your opinion, are they are they stricter than you'd expect, or is it a good thing? Well, I mean, uh, uh, I guess because my my education in the French building codes really didn't exist, but it was kind of funny compared to American codes. Um, they're both very difficult. I mean, the, the difference is this: uh, the biggest difference in quality is this: is that you have um, in the United States. The architect does, carries the project and the details and all these things very close to the finish line. And then you give it to a contractor and they pretty much pick the drawings up and build them. Now, cabinet makers do shop drawings, but primarily all of, all of the engineering, all these things are all done by the architect. In France, the architect is much more conceptual and the contractor comes in and takes the architect's drawings and takes much more of a, an active role in interpreting those things and building them. So to me, a lot of details that look shoddy uh, or corners that would get cut, this would happen because the contractor is minding his own his own wallet. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how does the designer monitor this? So yes, there were very strange things, things that were strange to me, even in the methodology of the construction, where the facades themselves almost hung upon the buildings. There were almost, there's a, a gap of air between the wood facade and the building itself. There were a lot of strange things to get used to and try to manage. But I found, I, I found that compared to the United States, um, they're both equally difficult. <laughs> just in different ways. Yeah, just in different ways. Uh, also the quality of materials, the quality of concrete we were getting to do the sidewalks was terrible. I mean, so you'd have to make the sidewalks more than once. Uh, you know, there were specifications that the architects didn't uh, catch and neither did the Disney project management of using sort of an inferior material for the facade that wasn't weather resistant. So that all the facades had to be systematically replaced over time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a tremendous cost. Uh, you mentioned weather then, it links on to our next point. Um, you were talking about, obviously, originally possibly thinking about putting um, a roof over Main Street, which was totally not going to be an option. But we've obviously got the wonderful arcades, the Liberty Arcade and Discovery Arcade. Whose idea was it to go with those arcades? Well, uh, probably Tony Baxter. Uh, the idea of running the, the guests behind the street and, and covering them that way was uh, more appealing. And I, I feel like there was some concept art that actually allowed a walkway to go through the centers of the stores uh, before there was uh, a dedicated arcade. The arcade kind of evolved. And I think it, it uh, I remember one Disney executive was making a 
parallel to the Burlington Arcade in the UK, which is in London. Yeah. There's also a copy of it here in California that's easy to see. I feel like someone, perhaps even the project superintendent Bob Fitzpatrick, might have mentioned that. It came from an unusual space, this arcade idea, because it's really not an American, a prevalent, I should say, American design. You don't find arcades from the 19th century pretty much anywhere in the United States, except I think Cincinnati, Ohio has a large covered mall. But that, you know, so I kind of had to look at the, the, the Americanizing a European design. So I looked at Gallery Vivienne, I looked at all the different um, arcades in Paris, and there was some, in, there's like one in Milan that's pretty good. And, uh, Vienna's got a beautiful arcade. So there's, there's, there's varieties of arcades, um, but because we're in the industrial revolution, and the little town is going to become a big town, the use of cast iron, almost like you'd find in New York, cast iron architecture. I tried to, to interpret the arcade as an American wood yeah. and uh, did it that way. You would source the objects the same way as you did for Main Street and sh like the props and the decorations, so all of that would have came from um, real places in America and shipped over, is that correct? For yeah. The, for the arcades? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, no, the arcades, all, all those, Deborah Rager was uh, was uh, an art director I was working with, and she had the task of building the props that go into the Liberty Arcade display cases, really treating it as if it was a museum display. So, you know, we from France we sourced the negatives of our, uh, Auguste Bartoldi, uh, you know, for the big photographic images. But then she had made you know, like little miniature models of the uh, of the steel of the Statue of Liberty, things like this. Those things were sourced there. The gas lights were made in the UK because we had a, we had a certain, there was a company called Sug, which is an English gaslight company. I don't think there were gaslight companies in France, but uh, anyway, that was the source. It, the European Union was basically the rule book for you know, you, what you, where you bought most of those kind of new, new items, you know. Um, I don't think we have a lot of antiques other, other than patent models. There was a collector in Beverly Hills who collected beautiful models from the United States Patent Office of submitted designs, mostly by immigrants and many by women, as a matter of fact, that uh, were loaned to us as a real museum display for the Discovery Arcade. So those were all, of course, sourced here. One of my followers, one of our followers on the podcast, Alan, uh, at Cafe Fantasia on Twitter, uh, is sending quite oh. a lot. You'll, you'll know Alan. You'll I read, don't know him, but I well, see Cafe Fantasia on there a lot. Yeah, you've read a few of his tweets on Twitter. He said here, um, links in with the 25th anniversary, actually. Uh, what's your personal opinion on the heavy use of seasonal decorations on Main Street USA, specifically some of the more modern and garish ones that don't fit in with the time period? So obviously, um, every time we've got a change of season, uh, whether it's swinging to spring or Halloween, and now we've got the 25th anniversary, um, there's always a nice load of decorations on Main Street and on the Main Street station as well. What's your opinion on that? Right. Well, uh, all of this comes from the fact that the park, over its 25-year history, has the fewest amounts of attraction improvements. So for the park to survive, and I mean survive at all, it seems like they have to use every other excuse and I, I call those decorations software yeah. <laughs> you don't have a new application a new app is an e-ticket ride you know that you're the, a new a, a new attraction would have been fabulous putting you know the shanghai pirates or whatever it is they want to put in their tron ride something something big and exciting and new but it's amazing to me that disneyland paris has survived on its environments for so long and been as popular as it is without new investment. So I kind of understand. I'm sympathetic to the idea of overdressing what you have, putting lipstick on, you know, to, to make it look more appetizing and different because there's nothing else for them to talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's to me, it, it it's almost, if, if you asked me with the park open, if they would go 25 years without, you know, how many e-tickets, Eddie? Oh, there'd be eight e-tickets by now. Well, forget it. You know, so I kind of understand it. Um, I what I'd love to see is one seasonal thing that celebrates the 19th century and kind of uh, is La Bella Poke Main Street, you know, and really brings out the characters and takes you back in time. And, and that could be really, really fun. Almost, you know, a time travel kind of thing. That would be neat. No, I mean, it, it's true. Um, being a purist myself, I love to see Main Street be Main Street, 
and and, and not necessarily and be able to see under the Halloween mask, you know, to to the real land, um, you know, those lights of winter kind of things that are completely out of scale, things like that, you know, can be, uh, you know, to be discordant with the intent, but. Unfortunately, Main Street, uh, one time someone told me that it wasn't a land. It's not a land of the park. <laughs> I said, oh, it's not a land of the park. And they said, yeah, because they were interviewing the design ma- designers of the park in a magazine in France. Yeah. And I wasn't asked to be one of the designers. They said, well, the other ones, are the, this is just here. So I think people see it as the doormat or the welcome mat to the rest of the park. <laughs> so in, in that way, I understand. I, don't, I can't say I love it. But I do understand uh, and comprehend why the park, uh, you know, and some of the decorations are better than others. Some enhance it and, uh, you know, and, and some may not not be as uh, sympathetic to the theme. Um, have you seen the 25th anniversary um, decorations that are on there? You know, it reminds me a lot of what's been done here at Disneyland, which is the blue and silver. And so, uh, you know, I think it's very elegant and kind of, uh, you know, adds the adds the uh to the elegance of the park you know versus other things so i think it's kind of nice yeah i think i must have been in my opinion i think this is one of the nicer decorations seasonal yeah. decorations we've had yeah well i think i think the the, the thing is it, it seems to me the merchandise for that celebration ties into the color of the decoration so if you buy the bug that's blue with the silver logo and you're walking around the park and you've seen the so, so you make memories and photographs with that beautiful 25 and it's classy looking, it looks elegant, and then you buy the, the merchandise that goes with it, that it reinforces your memory of it. It doesn't work against it. So I kind of tend to think that, that that's a cohesive look, you know, for the park. Yep. Um, this is also from uh, Cafe Fantasia on Twitter. Um, and you briefly mentioned it there about it not being a land, even though it is. Um, as the only land at Disneyland Paris without a dark ride, do you think that Main Street USA would benefit from a major attraction if we had the money and if there was the uh, space to do it? Um, and if, <laughs> if so, what would be your dream addition if you could pick anything? Wow, yes. Well, now, there was a dark ride proposed for Disneyland Paris's Main Street. You, maybe you don't realize this. So, I wasn't aware um, Well, see, this is why we have these podcasts, right? So... Um, I think there was a time when, at around the first year, they were looking for additional capacity, things you could add to the park. That's when the submarine Nautilus arrived in Indiana Jones. So we threw out ideas, and uh, one of the one of the things that I wanted to do was uh, a ride that would be like going uh, a dark ride that would be a bit thrilling, that would would almost give you the sense of what it was like to be in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And you would go into basically where Town Square transportation system is, which is the east side of Town Square. And you'd get on a trolley, like a cable car. And the cable car would take you through 1890s San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, things begin to shake, things begin to happen. And it was a it was a fun thrill ride with kind of a coaster, you know, thrilling ending and so forth. You escape, you escape the earthquake. But uh, that was one idea that was had. Of course, in the 1920s Main Street, we had a Circle Vision type uh, theater, which was kind of a larger version of the Main Street cinema, but celebrated movies. And since they're going to build a studio later, that kind of fell by the wayside. So those were things. And also the elevated train for 20s Main Street had a dark ride aspect to it. So the train would go up the Main Street on the right hand side. So on an elevated platform, it would stop in uh, briefly in Discovery Land, in front of Discovery Land, and then it would continue. And after Discovery Land, it would come down and parallel the Discovery Arcade. Now, it, part of that would be in a tunnel, and you would see beautiful models of kind of what Victorians imagined the future cities to be, very much like those posters that was all we ended up with on the walls that had different visions of American cities as they would be in the future. So you traveled through a beautiful future vision of what the Victorians thought uh, the age of discovery would be like. So that was a little bit of a dark ride. But um, the other thing, the other thing, it's not really a dark ride was a restaurant that I really, really wanted to do, which was like dining on the 20th century limited American railroad, which is a streamlined art deco train. And uh, this was also behind Town Square East, which was a private club, much like Club 33 is at Disneyland, only 
you're on a railroad journey across the states back in the 1920s and 30s. So those were some things we liked. Was there any uh, plans or designs made for those, or was it just discussions at this point, really? Oh, no, there's a there's a very... Nina Vaughn, one of our finest artists, did a really cool little sketch of a couple walking in front of a streamlined locomotive, and that's online. I think Alain oh, Lite yeah, yeah, has... Yeah, on Disney and more. Disney and more probably has, not that I'm plugging Disney and more, but I am, uh, has probably historically covered a lot of this and designing Disney.com. Uh, Max uh, has done a lot of work on covering a lot of the behind the scenes and origins and historical reference, but he has some images of that. Um, the earthquake ride, I don't think ever got into, you know, got very far, but uh, but that was it. Sounds like a really good idea, though. Um, how would it have, obviously, I know you didn't plan it any further than just the idea stage, but would it have been like a realistic simulation of an earthquake, or would it be more of a story, like storylized, like visualized based version in your Well, head? I think what we, well, what we, what, remember, Indiana Jones was in design at the time. Indiana Jones uses a motion base upon a moving vehicle. So the idea was that you could have some kind of a, uh, moving vehicle that looks like a San Francisco cable car and, and holds, you know, quite a few people. But when the earthquake happens, we can really shake this cable car and have all kinds of, you know, simulations of debris and things rocking and various things happening. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, there's a almost a cinematic way that we get you out of this situation. Um, but of course, you know, you would also get to understand what the Barbary Coast was like or the, the wild side of San Francisco. Again, we were trying to find things that Europeans are fascinated with. And one of the top tourist attractions for Europeans is the city of San Francisco. Yeah. It's very popular. So I thought, man, if we could represent that as an attraction, this this uh, the great quake of San Francisco that we first show you San Francisco, like the Pirates of the Caribbean, has some exposition, yep. and then we pay it off with something rather exciting and then rescue you. Where would the, an attraction actually have been based on Main Street? Was there a location in oh, mind? Yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah. It was, again, behind the east side of Town Square where you have the um, storage for the streetcars. Yep. So that streetcar barn would become the entrance to the attraction, and instead of those streetcars, you would enter the San Francisco cable car. Maybe you have one outside displayed. And it would be a beautiful entrance for an attraction because it's a very prominent piece of architecture. Now, something we like to mention on our podcast is uh, projection mapping. Because uh, we seem yeah. to, uh, we loved uh, Disney Dreams, and obviously we've now got Disney Illuminations, which uh, hopefully I'll be able to see in a couple of weeks uh, when I go for the 25th anniversary. Um mm. I know, um, is it Disneyland's Main Street? Or I can't remember if it's Disneyland or Disney World now that has um, projection mapping down Main Street as part of their nighttime spectacular. Um, what's your mm -hmm. opinion on how that technology is being used? Is Could you see any uh, use of it on our Main Street in the future? Well, here's the thing. I, I Historically over the years, maybe it's because I'm getting older, <laughs> you see certain techniques that can become insanely popular and then they, they can tend to be overused. And the only reason you ever use these techniques in the first place is for a guest to go, wow, how did they do that? How did they do that? And so, you know, I would like to see, I love projection mapping. I think projection mapping is a fantastic use of technology. I'm beginning to see it become somewhat overused. And I also feel that it's only as good as the media that it's, that it's being projected. And so, Unfortunately, what I see in some shows, I'm not saying Disney, I'm just saying in general, is that people use it like a movie projector, just showing film footage you've already seen against the most, you know, um, unsympathetic surface you can imagine. And so you kind of go, like, well, I should just watch this at home on my television. It would look a lot better, you know. Um, I think there was a, a beautiful program done in Prague where they took the Prague clock. If you go on YouTube and look at this and, and see the projection mapping, it was one of the first examples. It told a story. It, it, the media was superb. And so I think, A, the media and the way we use projection mapping needs to keep moving forward. It needs to keep developing. It needs to, we can't be sit on our laurel and say, oh yes, we're going to just, you know, just start projecting little sparkles. 
Here in California, it's funny, they even have a really cheap projection mapping thing you can put on your house during the holidays that puts little dots all over your house. I mean, so people are starting to do the cheese, cheesy home version already. So um, I love the technology, want to see it moving forward, but um, I feel like we could burn it out on people and uh, if we're not careful. Oh, and so we, we have to continue to add um, not just the media, but to be very sensitive to the to the way we're using it. Could it, obviously, instead of projection mapping onto a large canvas or a large building on Main Street, would it be possible, or do you feel it would be um, a good idea to, like, I don't know if it's possible on our Main Street, uh, project inside windows from the inside, so maybe, obviously, if you've got different seasons or there could be different stories or new stories added uh, to the windows of Main Street, um, kind of like, even if it's silhouettes of like the outlines of people or because obviously you've got the voices and the residents of Main Street um, mm, could we yeah, bring those to yeah. life in a, in a new way maybe telling oh. new stories well that, that would be good I mean I think all those things are, are very possible but see you're starting with something that's uh, that is uh, organic to the theme of Main Street so that is helpful um, the facades are so intricate with so much depth on them and the windows are made of glass so they project they reflect a projector bulb if you're going from the front. Yeah. So to me, it's 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 difficult to get people to forget what they're looking at. And Main Street is only remember Main Street's not designed to be stared at dead on. It's something you you're always focused at the castle. So as a projection surface, um, I think if you do very broad effects like snowflakes and sparkles and things like that, that just sort of help make the detail. Erase the building a little bit and, and just kind of make a, a grand general effect. Those will probably be more successful than trying to be have a narrative going on with each window and in, in each thing. I do love the idea, and I think forget about the projector of just having more going on in the upstairs windows and um, bringing it to life as a real town. You know, that's that's great. Am I correct in believing you actually were one of the voices? Uh, is it the dentist provided a voice for? Am I right there? Or? Oh, yeah, you are. I'm, I'm a Dr. Moller, the dentist, and also the patient. I'll the, see you. The screaming, I'm the screaming patient and the dentist. And then, in addition, um, until they changed it, I think they probably changed it, I was the uh, Mr. Quentin Spoon on the telephone in the market house. And then uh, the guy, uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman upstairs in the boarding house above Victoria's Fine Home Cooking who takes a shower and starts screaming in the shower and humming and all that kind of thing. That's also me and I'm the conductor at the uh, railroad, you know, now arriving, you know, bored and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it's in, quite, it's in quite a few, even Big Thunder, uh, uh, doing the hang on to your hats and glasses safety spiel it's not i don't do all of it but they needed a few extra you know please remain seated you know things like that oh, I, did, I didn't realize you were the, the voice of big thunder mountain as well Maybe well the, just just one just part of it just yeah. one part of it yeah um how do how do you get to do such a job obviously i know you're um, working on main street do they just need a voice and they come to you because you're the voice guy now or how do you get well, to do a part such as that well I, I the only way i would get chosen for that is being the person doing the choosing i mean i just kind of <laughs> I just cast my, the easiest way to get the part is to cast yourself, but, uh, you know, and, I, and also I was free because they'd already pay you to be there. They don't have to pay you. Once you work for Disney, they own your voice. You don't get paid extra to do. I think I only got paid extra once on Space Mountain as an actor, a voice actor for uh, Disneyland. But um, I know, and it's funny. I mean, there's Crazy. the voice of Shrunken Ned, this arcade game, which has... <laughs> A product line now associated with it but uh, yeah I think a lot of those was just a lot of fun and, and sometimes I would be looking for a particular voice and the person in the sound department so why don't you just do it it would be much faster and easier just so a lot of those voices were recorded in a studio in Paris what is your favorite area or corner of Main Street or building of Main Street USA if you've got a favorite oh that's a great I do um, I really love um, well I don't know. I, 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 I'm very happy with the way the Town Square Transportation Building came out. So I love that whole block of Town Square East. I think it came out really great. Um, and then second to that would be the corner there with the billboards on it because it was very difficult to negotiate and get someone, get the rest of the company to agree 
to, to, for example, to do colors differently. Like we had never done that deep ox blood red. See, Main Street was never known to be having these super dark colors. Yeah. But I went to John Hench and said, hey, I think I'm going to use these different European style colors. There's a whole thing about the color scheme of Main Street. It's very different than the other parks. And then it caught on and, and it ended up becoming, that color scheme ended up migrating to Disneyland in California because I went there afterward. But did the color scheme, um, was that kind of pushed along by the weather in Europe? Did the grey sky, like I know the castle is um, a certain color because obviously it works with the grey skies and it always stands out. Did the weather have anything to do with the color scheme? Yeah, it did, and, and definitely for the for the uh, points you mentioned. I mean, um, the gray skies are there, so we kind of did these rich blue roofs and things to get it to stand out instead of doing a light slate or something like that. I mean, if you look at the hotel, Disneyland Hotel, I mean, it has the pinks and the reddish roof to really be look warm and inviting. I mean, we psychologically want to create a, a positive sense. But, you know, but, but the whole thing with the colors as well was... Um, I was very much nervous about this problem of it being this American thing that nobody would understand. So I went to the um, hardware store Bayash Bay, BHB, um, in downtown Paris and went into the basement where they have all their paints and so forth and asked for um, the, the, the fan deck or the color sample book of all the historic colors they use for restoration of French buildings, which has the beautiful French grays and it has the beautiful maroons. I said, well, these are the colors Europeans respond to when they think of something from their childhood that's antique and warm and beautiful, you know? Um, because this is American, you know, I go to Europe and there's colors that I look at that I don't respond to that other people do, that they love, you know? In Italy, those orange plastic chairs in front of all the, <laughs> all the little restaurants, you know, like, oh, or lime green. I go, ooh, that's just so, you know, obnoxious. But they love it, and that's and that's their thing. It's, it's almost like a cultural thing to color. So I thought, well, how can I use the French palette of color, which I am in love with. It's so beautiful. You know, and, and also some of the British level of contrast where you use a black door, or you use a maroon door, you use some of those things. How do I take that, but then layer that with pinstriping and graphics and kind of make it fun? and put the um, kind of lighthearted, childlike American, you know, uh, flair on it. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And that's what my explanation to John Hensch was, is I want to use a European uh, nostalgia to a little degree, but then spin it toward it being American, and people will look at that and, and hopefully uh, feel it's tasteful. I don't want them to be, a, I don't want them to not listen to the story because somehow the color choices are offensive to them. I guess that's, I wanted a common ground with my audience before going forward. Town Square photography has obviously sadly been uh, changed now. Where, are the, uh, where did the inspiration come from for Town Square photography and also what are your feelings about that actually being replaced? Um, well, you know, um, as I said before, Knott's Berry Farm was the first place I worked at. And, you know, working there, they have a, a real ghost town, meaning they took a Western town that was abandoned and as best they could, they tried to replicate it and move it so people could look into the buildings. They would put mannequins and displays in there that looked very realistic, filled with antiques. And it'd be a way of you looking in the window and going back in time. And so when I became a young designer there, I was probably like 21 or 22, I would put music on headphones and listen to Western music and look at history books and to make sure that I was channeling the past. I was kind of uh, a method actor, if you will, as a designer. I was inside of the story looking out. So I, I said, well, how, how do I put myself into the Old West? How, how, how would that man have picked up that bottle of whiskey that's in the photograph sitting on the bar in this historic photo? And then try to make sure that those spaces really reflected the character of the West. So I kind of wanted to bring this idea of this, this Main Street having more of a museum quality, it just felt right to me to have some spaces where the citizens of Main Street might have left five minutes earlier. And that's the exact same reason those windows are there with the voices or a dog barking. Every city has a dog barking somewhere. Well, why can't we have a dog barking in the upstairs window or the sound of a guy taking a shower? That, that this is powered by people. It's not, there's characters here. And so this the photography um, the story of it, of course, was driven from the fact that uh, you, you look at photography, what was America's contribution to photography? Well, our contribution, 
our contribution or George Eastman's contribution was rolled film. Now, George Eastman, I think he might have been a Scot, as a matter of fact. But anyway, George Eastman uh, basically allowed photography to be portable, much like the camera is now in your phone. And so back in the 1890s, you had to go to a studio to have your picture taken or the photographer would come out to you or something. Well, now you could buy a wooden box camera with film in it take 18 pictures or whatever you had and then mail the box and everything back and they put another roll of film and mailed it back to you that sounds very awkward but um, so he democratized photography so anyone could be a photographer and it took off so that's why you see the store originally looks like it had been expanded the store happened if you look at all historic pictures or you know from 92 of that room you'll see that the room is actually in two parts it's like the wall was torn down and he expanded and uh, he was uh, very much of uh, a bit of an absent-minded person. So you've got all kinds of bottles and props. And of course, the original countertop, which is really special to me personally, was uh, a sheet of glass. And under the glass, our prop buyers had found beautiful historic photos from all over the United States of you know immigrant families and little children and all kinds of wonderful national parks. And, and the idea, if you stood at the counter, you could see how the camera was used by common people around the country. And so, you know, even one mounted on a locomotive to take pictures of trains, we had all kinds of wonderful things. And so all that led to the office and the office of the proprietor. And this is a page out of Knott's Berry Farm of, uh, I think Deb Rager went in there and, and basically set up the space. And then at the end, I came in and sat there and pretended to be the proprietor at the desk in this enclosed room, which is locked off, you know, and put his glasses on and took his pen out. And um, the man was a collector of cigar labels, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, and pretended that we have real receipts um, from real transactions uh, that were there, you know, in that office and even put them in places where people could find them and look at them and read them through the window. So uh, again, every time you think you've seen all of Main Street, there's um, a little bit of reality to reinforce the fantasy. But that was it. I just locked up, locked the door and left. Yeah. I wanted the glasses and everything to be left as they were. So um, how, how do you feel about that being replaced then? Obviously, you're not working at Disney well, anymore. Well, I'm, well, I know. About, well, would I rather see it be there? Absolutely. Do I think it was a wonderful piece of, of art that the prop buyers and that the team had put together? Absolutely. It was a great thing. But again, I have to be a bit of a realist. You know, um, it's a very valuable, if you're the Disney company, it's an extremely valuable corner from a profitability point of view. And photography has now become part of your phone. Even the Kodak company that sponsored it fell on extremely hard times as a result of this. And so people aren't going there to buy cameras or to buy film. I mean, its purpose has kind of gone away. Now, there's one side of me that says, well, the only reason Main Street exists is it's it's a showcase of the obsolete. Nobody has gas lights either, but Main Street does. And nobody uses horses to get down the street, but Main Street does. And so would I love to have seen that be a photo gallery of amazing stuff with um, other items? Could, could we be more creative than perhaps doing another... Uh, Paris souvenir store. Does the world really need that? I don't know. You know, I don't know. That's up to, I don't know how well the store does. Maybe it does very well. So, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I do, but I do regret um, it going away, you know, and, um, but, you know, it, it's funny. So George Lucas is there. I, I, I reconvene, you know, years later with George Lucas, right? And he's there. And what was his comment? My favorite thing was the was the camera store. I go, what did you like about me? He goes, oh, camera store is awesome. Well, the camera store is great. So um, it got good reviews while it lasted. But sometimes those places um, that are heavy on show and light on profitability or merchandise, they're kind of on the endangered species list. And eventually the dinosaur, you know, gets hit with a meteorite and they're gone, you know. And so I think that's kind of what happened. But um, here's the funny thing. Um, I feel like Main Street has so much show. Uh, we kind of put so much into it, knowing <clears throat> the company would edit over time that at least we're left with other stuff. I swallowed my coffee wrong there. I'm not. I'm not at the brink of <laughs> tears, dying. as you might say. But, I you, you know, were I'm not dying. <laughs> I, it's not killing me to talk about it, but you know. So, so. you've became quite active on Twitter. Uh, is it something that you like to use to? Uh, talk to like people interested in uh, what you've been working on and your projects and stuff like that and to share memories well i just thought 
the, the Twitter thing, I, I pretty much ignore it. And I, I try to, I, I get sucked into the, the time use of these things. And so um, I traditionally don't use it, but I thought I was cleaning out my closet and I've just been getting rid of a lot of stuff and moving things out of the closet. So it kind of triggered a lot of memories. It is the 25th anniversary. So I thought, you know what? It might be fun for other people to enjoy seeing this this artifact that I just pulled out of a box as well. And so it was just more or less that. I probably, you know, I, I probably won't be on there in another month for very, very much. But uh, Tom Morris, who's recently retired and he puts a lot of photos out. But um, yeah, it's been really fun uh, to share some of these things. If I find a photo, I thought it'd be very nice to share that. Other people may want to see that. So that's, that, that's I'm not, I'm not, I can't say I'm really very fond of Twitter, but it's just, it was just something that happened, I suppose. I just felt compelled to, to you know, other people should see that too. They'd really get a, get a charge out of it. Oh, you've or been, maybe it's a, yeah, a story. Been sharing some really good stuff. It's been interesting. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Um, is there anything that you've pulled out of a box that, because obviously I know you've sold a couple of items on eBay recently. Um, is there any... yeah, I know. <laughs> Shocking. Is there anything that you've pulled out of a box and you've uh, kept hold of or anything that you won't be uh, parting company uh, with? Boy, that's a good question. Of course, the box is pretty deep. I, I still <laughs> haven't gotten to the, the bottom of it yet. I mean, there's some original art, little sketches and things I've done or, you know, things like that. I, I may or may not. I just had a sketch mounted. It's kind of funny. I had this big panoramic drawing of Main Street. And it's actually, it came out fairly nice. And it was done on tracing paper. And back then, the company was so busy. If you had something just on tracing paper, not mounted, not colored, but just, you know, a sketch on tracing paper, they didn't, the art library wasn't interested in it. I, would, I, I took a big pile of these things. I said, do you want all these sketches and stuff? And they said, no, 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 just... You can have that stuff. Just if it's mounted, give it to us. We can only do that. I go, okay. So I ended up with some sketches and things that I'd worked on and so forth. So I had folded it up and put it in a book and not known it was in a book. And I opened up this book recently and then found this big drawing, but it, it had really been pretty badly treated. So oh, no. um, I'm getting this mounted uh, by this company called Poster Mountain here in Los Angeles. And they're the, if you're going to get something mounted to preserve, you're like, you have a Disney artifact, these are the people to go to. They're really fantastic. And so they had to do testing on the tracing paper to see what they could mount it with that wouldn't destroy the drawing. <laughs> and they finally were able to do it. So that's that's probably something I wouldn't be parting with today. It is a funny thing because I have a little, have a little, um, little something I'm looking for that I can't find. Two things I'll keep is my original WED ID card. Yeah. That has wed written on it because i was well, probably the last if not close to the last person to be inducted under wed and they changed the to imagineering like a week later oh cool and yeah so well, it's, I mean, it's your fault like a, it's your fault to change the name. oh I, well I hope, <laughs> <laughs> probably probably I, I, enough other things i've done and then the um the other thing is that when i was a i was a small kid i got a, an opportunity to tour walt disney world under construction Oh, cool. And they gave our family a vehicle pass with the date on it, and I can't find the silly thing. And I really, that was a keepsake to me. So that's, that's there's a couple of things that I probably wouldn't sell that I'm hoping are down at the bottom of one of these boxes at some point. Is there anything uh, in your like career after you've left Disney that you've t taken inspiration from your work with Imagineering, or is it? Any, even if it's just um, ways of working that you've kind of carried on into your the rest of your career. Um, Abs absolutely, yeah, sure. Um, I think the whole thing is uh, experiential design. And when I, and if you go to the Sato Studios website under the About uh, area, you can you can watch a video about experiential design. Meaning, um, you start with what people you know. It's like Herbie Ryman. I'll start with another story. So Walt Disney is walking down the street with Herb Ryman, and uh, who's the the uh, really wonderful illustrator. And if you look up his career, it's just insane. Um, and Herbie tells me the story. So I'm walking down the street with Walt, and Disneyland has just put a, a dirt, you know, a dirt project at this point. And Herbie points to where the Plaza Gardens restaurant would be at Disneyland Paris. He says, uh, "Walt, uh, what would you like me to build over there? What would you like to see over there?" And then Walt uh, looks at him and goes. Uh, well, Herbie, uh, just do something that uh, people will like. Yes, do something people will like. <laughs> and Herbie said to me, he goes, now that was, I was so furious when he said that, 
what kind of direction is that? Do something people will like. And then he walks away. What am I supposed to do? You know, and so later, when you think about this, what Walt Disney was really meant is that you're satisfying people's needs. You're really thinking emotionally about the person and the guest. And really what your goal is, is to figure out what people really dream of, their aspirations, and you give it to them a little better than they can imagine. And so I've always taken this as the genesis of anything that I work on, is I start with, wow, and go backwards into what the design should be. Start with the result. What do you want someone to feel when they come into your trade show booth about the new Tesla? Well, we want them to feel hope that the environment and uh, you know high performance can live together. Okay, fine. Well, that informs the design of whatever you're doing. So in the aircraft that I work on or residential work, I always try to bring the story and the warmth first and the, and the wow first and go backwards into what the design should be and not be such a slave to the branding people with their color chips and you know for some arbitrary reason it has to be this color of red and all that i mean yes that's important but but the, what's really important is what how people respond to what you're doing and 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 how you know you really want to always not be satisfied with what you've done and look at it and say well how can we do this a little more interestingly or how can we uh do something it's like projection mapping you mentioned yeah. hey it's a great technique where is it going i know where it is I don't want to see more of where it is. I want to see where it's going. What can we do to have um, the projection be more intelligent? Um, it's projecting on the guests and changing what the guests look like in relation to the building. Okay, now that's more interesting or whatever it is, you know. So yes, I, I definitely use those processes. And the, and the other process, very important. Imagineering is imagination and engineering. What does that mean? It means two disciplines that really depend upon each other for success. And so it's shared success. It's not my name on the door. Uh, it's Disney's name on the door. It's not my main street. Yes, I'm the figurehead of it, but my goodness, there's you know hundreds of people that were involved in making that a success. And if you really wanna be successful, you bring people that are smarter than you, <laughs> which is yeah. usually easy for us, bring the experts in the room and you put the impossible on the table and you put it like a stake. Now, the people that are really good at what they do, they're not afraid of that. They're not insecure about that. They're gonna go, wow, yeah, I, I think we could try this. I think we could try that. And you get a lot of people around um, the stake, the, the goal, and uh, like going to the moon or anything else. And then people will kind of figure out a way to do it. And, uh, and, and you know, and to try to be open to how people wanna get there and uh, steer it toward a success. And I think Imagineering is, is the essence of, you know, great teamwork. But, uh, but always elevating the, the task, it's not easy. And I remember one of the project managers saying, well, you know, it'd be easier just to do this, we could just do that. I said, well, frankly, that's why not, you're, you know, you're being paid more money to be the Disney project manager. You could be doing condos somewhere, building condominiums and apartment houses. That's, that's easy. People know how to do that. I'm asking you to do you know, a, a steam-powered locomotive that is gonna have to have heat you know, sensitive paint in colors that no one's done before so the heat sensitive paint doesn't come off or whatever. Oh, okay. I go, okay, and, and, that, and by the way, that's why you, you should wanna be here. That should be your motivation is you're actually like um, the computer pioneer we had at Disney named Alan Kay called it hard fun. It's hard fun. It's hard fun. And I think you know any mountain climber could tell you about hard fun, you know? So that, that's, those are the things that I tried to bring uh, into my afterlife. <laughs> and I have to say, a lot of the work that I've, I've been able to do, I think is better, even better work than the work I did at Imagineering. I just can't talk about it. But, um, but, but, I'm, I'm, but I'm very proud of the shoulders that I've been able to stand on and, and listen to other people and learn from them. And I wouldn't be able to do what I can do today uh, without those lessons and without those other people and, and, and their willingness to share their, their wisdom. I was an 11 year old and I called Disney and I said, you know, I have an idea for a ride. And they said, listen, anything you could think of, we've already thought of, so don't ever call us again. Now you could either take that as a, uh-oh, the door was slammed, I guess I'll just give up now. Or you could say, well, you know, wait a minute. How do they know what I'm gonna think of? How do they know what this is? I'm not gonna take no for an answer. I was kicked out of WDI twice. I interviewed and they said, we already have 
a Steve Kirk, or we already have this kind of person, or we don't need Western towns, because I showed my Knott's Berry Farm stuff. We don't need that. They're being very literal about it. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that I was able to finally uh, make it there. And, and the third time around, they did see something that they were looking for, and I was, I was able to get hired. But um, not giving up and being persistent, and uh, you know, being humble. And uh, I think the, the last piece of advice would be, you know, we don't all get to make our masterpiece instantly. I get continually contacted by people who say, "I want to be an Imagineer. I got this idea for a ride. I want to just go build it." And unfortunately, the way the world works is you end up doing a lot of dishes and laundry before you become the chef. Yeah. You work in the kitchen, but you're not you're not cooking the food yet. And so I try to, you know, my dad always said that that um, play is nothing more than work you enjoy. So if you can find a way to make the things you're doing on the way up, the uh, tasks you you know you're, you're doing, um, really try to find a way to make them enjoyable. Make them something that you can learn something from. Um, I'm working for another company right now and, and in a field I don't really know very well. And I'm loving it because I don't know. I'm not the head guy. I'm just in there, part of a team and learning. And, I, and it's, it's like rebirth. It's just very exciting. Uh, I'd like to finish off with a couple uh, final questions. If you were, uh, obviously you mentioned there you, would, you possibly would, you would have fit in with um, Imagineering and working on Discoveryland. Uh, because of obviously the Jules Verne um, steampunk kind of theming. Is there another land in Disneyland Paris you really would have loved to have got your hands on? Oh, yeah. Frontierland. Obviously, with because the Wild of the West, Knotts, yeah. Oh, well, the Wild West, the Knott's Berry Farm thing, and really uh, doing doing something like that. That would have been a lot of fun. Frontierland, though, too, you know, there was a certain, there was a certain program that had already been preset for it. But um, Frontierland had a, another one, one wonderful guy named Pat Burke, and he found, like Main Street, um, they went the same direction and got all kinds of wonderful things from American gold mines. And I'm just great props. The props to me in Frontierland are the star of the show because those things are authentic and they add, they really make the fantasy real. Um, but, but after the Knott's Berry Farm thing, that would have been so much fun to work on those Western buildings and uh, I love Western American history too. I like history in general, even European history, and all that is fun. So um, I love trying to, to to bring that to it. But that would have been fun. I wouldn't have. I would have been. Wouldn't have been sad to get that assignment. Uh, it's quite funny because obviously um, you would have loved to have done that because of your interest in that kind of history. Um, but me being a guest when I was maybe 15, 16, visiting Disneyland Paris for the first time. It was actually Frontierland that kind of sparked my interest in watching those kind of Western films and going backwards that way. Really? Yeah. What, what did you watch as, I'm now curious, what did you watch as a result? Oh, it's all oh. of the uh, the mainstream ones that everyone's watching, the spaghetti westerns, that kind of thing. Similar with um, oh. Discoveryland as well. Obviously, um, yeah. I was never really into any roller coasters or anything like that. And I'm going into uh, Space Mountain in the dark. That's when I got the courage to go on that. And then it's kind of sparked my interest in all things theme park and attraction and stuff like that. So it's, it's amazing how one little spark somewhere can kind of set you off on a, a path and a journey. Well, I, I know as a, a young boy... I found that the immersion of Disneyland made me interested in history because I wasn't, I'm a terrible student. So um, New Orleans Square is probably my favorite land ever created in any Disney park, bar none, just ab the original New Orleans Square. Yeah. Um, and so that made me interested in the city of New Orleans. It made me interested in reading about pirates. It made me interested in architecture, more than Main Street or any of that. And uh, my, the first book my mom got me was this $4 book of plates from the 20s of the buildings of New Orleans. So you would just sit and sketch all the details of the iron and all that stuff. And it's it's interesting when you're immersed in history, it's like going on a vacation to Rome, you know, suddenly you became interested in the Roman Empire. But but they've also built it as it was. So you can even be in that time period. Those kind of things are pretty immersive. And I think um, if that was in a parking lot, I don't know that I would feel the same way, but the fact that it was a complete world with the pirates, with that, I had I was so over, overwhelmed emotionally, um, it kind of drives you into other other pursuits, you know, it drives you into the other things. So, um, final question, I think this one's from Cafe Fantasia as well, he always sends in about 500 questions. Oh um, my goodness! <laughs> no, um, I, you know what, hello, is Alan? Alan, yeah. Or, yeah. Alan, hello. Thank you for your great questions. You'll love that. 
This is actually probably one of the sneakiest ones. Obviously, you might have already revealed all this before, but his question is, what's the biggest secret about Main Street USA that you haven't revealed before? That I haven't revealed before? Yeah. Well, that secret, I can't... I mean, the reason it hasn't been revealed is it has to remain unrevealed. Um, so that's, that's, that's a, a bit sneaky. I remember once... You know, do you understand what a Victorian cresting is? No, I'm not sure what that a, is. Okay, okay, a cresting... When you look up at a building and you see ironwork that's just on the top edge, it's almost like a little a little grill that's okay. on the edge of the roof at the very top, and it yep. makes a very beautiful silhouette. Usually yep. it's some kind of lacy, looks like lace up there. See a lot well, of them in Mary Poppins, probably. Right, you do. And yeah. on the Victorian homes, you, it's almost uh, like a little fence up there. Yeah. Okay. So for the, uh, I, I went through various periods of being angry and not angry and so forth. So, um, well, I'll actually give you two secrets. So, so that one, I drew uh, a sketch of making the crestings on the Emporium's dollar signs. <laughs> like, like the whole roof of the building was going to be hidden dollar signs. And I think I chickened out at the last minute. So that's one that came to mind. I don't think that's ever been published. And then the other one was um, a Main Street window. And it's since gone now, so I, I don't think I can be prosecuted for this. But... Um, I snuck my, my wife's maiden name into a Main Street window, Ooh. and then um, they actually put it up. <laughs> they didn't know. It, they just thought it was a fictitious thing, or I don't know what it was. They usually have fact checkers checking all that stuff. I just had written it on a list, and then all of a sudden, it, I, one day, my wife comes out to Main Street. I said, well, you got the one thing that nobody, it's completely impossible to get is a window on Main Street. She's you're kidding that's uh, since since it's been replaced i think 10 years ago or something it was replaced but um, but for a while there that was I, because my I, I feel that my wife made more sacrifices than i did for all the nights i wasn't at home and yeah. 14 hour days and you know really they they are to any married person that has to build a disney park they are the unsung heroes and i owe so much of the support and and patience to her you know and and helping me uh as, as well as many people get through these things. So I figured she she deserved it. But um, anyway, should, uh, it was there for a little bit and then gone. That's amazing. Do you feel there should be then um, some windows dedicated to the wives of the Imagineers or the, the husbands of the Imagineers? I think it would be, I think it would be an endless, endless, there wouldn't be enough windows to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what would be, what would be, what would be really nice though is um, to create a fictitious society you know, like a women's club or society, and just dedicate something to all the people that supported all, you know, that, that, that supported their husbands doing these things. And of course, there's also, you know, maybe there's a men's club, because there's a lot of women that work at Imagineering now yeah. that are also married. There's just a lot of sacrifice. I mean, I do people that would have bypass heart surgery because of the stress of trying to build a Disney park. I mean, it's tremendously stressful. It takes uh, a lot of hours, you know, and so, so many people, and who, by the way, who never get interviewed, who never get credit, um, really, really uh, delivered their sweat and blood to bring Disneyland Paris to reality. I would like to say a big, big thank you on behalf of the Magical Disneyland Paris podcast for Eddie Soto there taking time out of his busy schedule to speak to us about all things Main Street USA. The focus of our next podcast episode for Magical DLP will see me and Simon back together again discussing the Magical Main Street USA and everything that Eddie and his team had put together. Let us know your opinions. Email us at podcast at magicaldlp.co.uk. Message us on Twitter, Facebook or via our website at magicaldlp.co.uk. If you like what we're doing, don't forget you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes and also get in touch. This podcast is nothing without you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Magical Disneyland Paris podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Your attention, please. The Euro Disneyland Limited, now departing for a trip around the Magic Kingdom.